open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're continuing our series in Acts. Looking at this epic story of the gospel as it, as it spreads through the witness of God's people and the power of the Spirit starting in Jerusalem and ultimately through a number of dramatic events, a number of situations where the church faces great peril and yet God comes through in his sovereign grace uh, again and again and again. The gospel continues to go forward and we, we looked at last week a, a new character on the scene who is very important in this initial progress of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, this person uh, named Saul who starts out in the story and acts as a chief enemy of the church, probably perhaps even the, the chief enemy, at least in terms of humanity, of the church. And then through um, a spectacular conversion, where God turns him around, uh, we see him go from a chief enemy of the church to a chief proponent of the church, a chief enemy of the mission to the Gentiles to a chief proponent of the mission to the Gentiles. And we learned how God... Uh, is a God who spectacularly turns us around for great good, certainly in the life of Paul, but also in our lives as well. well what I want to do today is to look at the rest of chapter 9 and to learn more from Paul's life. What we'll do this week is look at really the, the results of his conversion and what happened and what Luke tells us about uh, immediately following his conversion. We're going to look at his, his life as a wonderful example for us to learn from. And we're not just going to look at this, though. We're not just going to study it. We're not going to just try to understand the, the flow and the, the meaning and the import, what Luke is trying to say. As important as that is, and as necessary as that is, what we really want to do as we go through this is we want to hear from God himself. He's given us his word He's given us this word, and he's given it so that we might hear him, encounter him, love him, be changed by him, and be commissioned by him to his purposes. So this is more than just a, a study or a lecture or whatever. By God's grace, what we want to ask the Lord is that we would hear from him, that I would fade into the background that all the other things maybe that are distracting us would fade and that we would hear from God himself. It's really quite an amazing thing. God's committed, though, to do this, to, to minister to us, to be in our midst. Uh, and it's a daunting thing for me, uh, but God is faithful. So let's ask him. Let's ask him to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your heart's desire to, to minister to your people. Lord, you know each and every one here. You know what's going on, and, and you know what we need. You know what you have planned for the future. And, Lord, you know us corporately, too. Lord, you don't just think of us individually. You think of us corporately, even primarily corporately. And you know what we need, God. And, Lord, all I know is that we need you. And you've given us your word that you might speak and bring life. So would you do that this morning, Lord? Would you help me, Lord? Lord, I, I am so challenged by the call to preach your word. And I feel so inadequate adequate in and of myself to give you the proper 
the proper place, the proper emphasis that you deserve. And in and of myself, I'm, I'm incapable of that. But I thank you for Christ, his blood and righteousness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your power and the gifts that you give and your presence here. So in light of your promises and your person, O God, would you come and speak to us through your word? and Would you do wonders through this that we might hear from you and be changed and walk out of here different than how we came in because you have spoken? May you get all the glory. May we be satisfied in you as a result, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Acts chapter 9. We'll start in verse 19. Uh, the second half, the latter half of 19, and follow through to verse 31 as it speaks about Saul, what happens after this dramatic conversion. It says, picking up in verse 19, halfway through, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So... The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts 9, 19 through 31. As I said, Luke is continuing this story. And we're learning about this man, this apostle to the Gentiles, and his unique and amazing role in redemptive history. And really, he is an example of a life that is saturated and compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Luke is doing here in just these 12 and a half verses is really giving us a snippet of Paul's life. These 12 and a half verses actually cover about three or four years of Paul's life after his conversion. And elsewhere in Scripture, we can learn more about those three or four years. There's more detail. There's actually more detail later in the story as Paul recounts that time. And there's more detail in Galatians and elsewhere. But Luke isn't trying to give us a comprehensive story of Paul's life. And that's an important thing to recognize, not only for Acts, but in the Gospels themselves. We're used to modern day biographies and history that goes into great detail about all the things that happened chronologically. That was not the style of the time and not the style of Luke. 
He's just summarizing for us Paul. And he wants us to understand that, that this man has been radically changed. He's been radically turned around, and now his life is totally different, totally new, totally reoriented. And so in these 12 and a half verses, he just talks about what Saul did and how he lived. It's really a mini-biography, a mini-biography really of Saul's entire life. For what goes on in these 12 and a half verses is really a, a template for the entirety of Paul's life. And that's really what Luke is doing. He's just summing up Saul, summing up Paul, his Roman name, and his life in these 12 verses. So what I want to do this morning is, is do what Luke is doing to reference Acts 9, but also go elsewhere and do a mini-biography of Paul that we might learn from his life. Now, there's two things I think we can do in reflection of Paul. There's two things I think the Lord wants us to do when, when he presents Paul through the book of Acts. First, when we look at his life and we see see what happened, we see how he was reoriented. When we look at his life and see the amazing grace of God, the first thing and probably the foremost thing for us to do in response is just to simply marvel, just to simply marvel at God's grace. To look at his life and think, isn't it amazing what God can do? Look at what he did. He took the chief enemy of the church, a man thoroughly dedicated, thoroughly dedicated to exterminating the church, thoroughly convinced, thoroughly impassioned, and doing all he can to wipe out the church. He took this man and turned his life entirely around, forgave him for his heinous sins, and then filled him and empowered him to do just the opposite of what he was doing. Isn't God's grace amazing? And there should be that aspect as we look at the life of Paul of just simply marveling at God's grace. When I watch Tom Brady on next Sunday, by recording, by the way, I think. because No, actually, I'll better watch it live. When we watch it next Sunday, I'm not going to watch Tom Brady and think, yeah, Tom Brady, I'm going to get out after this game and start warming up on my football game and, and be just like Tom Brady. I don't do that. We don't do that. We enjoy Tom Brady and the, the Patriots for, if you're a Patriots fan, for their giftedness. And, and, and we get behind them. In a sense, and, and actually even more dramatically and importantly, with Paul, that's part of what we do. We just look and marvel and say, isn't God's grace amazing? But also, as we look at the example of his life, we are to see his life as a model as well. Now, there's aspects of his life that we're not to model. There's things about him that are unique. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He, he, his conversion, the circumstances of, of, of his conversion were just amazing. And we're not going to duplicate that. And his commission is unique as the God, apostle to the Gentiles. And what he did in redemptive history, you, you're never going to come anything near, near him. But there is much about his life to model. And actually, as you read through his letters, pretty much in every single letter, he either directly or indirectly calls us to follow his example, to follow the model of his life. So we want to this morning marvel and model the life of Paul. Marvel at and model the life of Paul by God's grace. To to look at this life and, and say, look at what God has done. Isn't it marvelous? 
but also to, to look at his life and say, look at what God can do in my life as well. So let's take time to look at his life. We're going to look at his convictions. We're going to look at his character and his conduct, which is basically a way to sum up his life. His convictions, we're going to marvel and model his convictions, his character, and his conduct. So first, his convictions. In this passage, we see that Paul has been turned around, and it says in verse 20, he's converted, he's with the disciples, he's, he's, he's been changed, he's been filled with the Spirit, he's baptized, and it says in verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. Paul is totally convinced by his encounter and in his life of this truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he immediately goes into the synagogues. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. He immediately goes into the synagogues and proclaims, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And I'm sure people just thought the guy was crazy. I mean, just, just a few days ago, you were trying to wipe these people out, and here you are now proclaiming Jesus he is the Son of God. And that phrase is, is maybe for us, it, we're used to it. It doesn't sound that, that important, but that is a, a packed phrase. It's loaded with meaning. And to march into a synagogue and proclaim that He is the Son of God took amazing boldness, amazing conviction. Paul was convinced. He was convicted that Jesus is the Son of God. That, that the phrase Son of God means means that this one, Jesus, is, is God's chosen one. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is God Himself, the champion, God among us, God in the flesh, the judge of all men, the beloved of God. It, it is saying all those things in that phrase. And they, they understood what that phrase meant because when someone else, in answer to a question, are you the Son of God, says, yes, I am, or I am, they killed Him. They knew what that meant. It got Jesus killed. And it, it, it was truth, but it got him killed by the establishment. Paul, perhaps even aware of what Jesus had said at his own trial, is in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And that truth and that proclamation and that reality and all that comes with it shaped his entire life. It shaped everything about him. That conviction formed who he was and how he lived and what he did. And lest you think that this is merely the, the passing enthusiasm of a new convert, you can look in Scripture 30 years later. Look in Scripture 30 years later when he's in jail. He's in jail in, in Rome, most likely. He's in jail for, uh, as a result of what goes on at the end of Acts. And he's writing a letter to the Philippians, his beloved friends. And he says in Philippians 1, and this is a great book to spend time in, uh, Lord willing, next fall we'll, we'll do a series through Philippians. But in Philippians 1, chapter 12 through 14, he's speaking about his imprisonment, and he has that same conviction and that same attitude here 30 years later, that the same same solid conviction that is driving his life. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The word, the word being the gospel, the truth that he is the Son of God. 
And so here he is, he's in prison, and he's rejoicing in prison that Christ is proclaimed, that people are emboldened to proclaim Christ. He's still committed to this truth. He's still convinced of the, the meaning and the importance and the truth that he is the Son of God. And later in Philippians, a wonderful passage a wonderful passage of chapter 2, 6 through 11. He's seeking to bring truth to the Philippians to help them grow in their godliness. And he speaks of the best thing he knows to do is to say, guys, you want to be godly? Then listen to this truth. He is the Son of God. And so he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's declaring it. He's discipling people in this truth. He's still driven by the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is a man thoroughly convinced about the truth and the worth of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, crucified, risen, reigning, returning. And he's willing to be persecuted in Damascus for it. He goes on. He's persecuted in Damascus. And and if you read the other parallel accounts in Damascus, that, that because of his proclamation... And he's there a number of years. He's there three years. He, it, it looks like he goes out to the des- nearby desert of Arabia uh, for a while, probably to be discipled perhaps by Christ himself. Comes back to Damascus, continues to preach, and they're out to kill him. And actually the, the local king of that district tells the governor I want to be on watch to seize him. And they have to lower him in a basket at night outside the wall for him to get away. And he doesn't give up. He goes to Jerusalem after that. He goes to the headquarters of the opposition and he proclaims Christ boldly in the very synagogues that had opposed Stephen before that he had been a part of. He proclaims Christ boldly and he's, his life is threatened again. His whole life is, is one driven by this proclamation of Christ as the Son of God, the Savior and King. And he's willing to be imprisoned in Rome because he knew whom he had believed. He knew that Christ was God in the flesh. He knew that he had lived this perfect life according to the commands of God, that he had gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating it, his authority as the king over the kingdom through miracles, signs and wonders, that he had gone to the cross intentionally, voluntarily to, to suffer and die and shed his holy blood for the sins of the world any and all who would call upon His name. He had risen as God's chosen champion and final conqueror over sin and death, and He now reigns. And He will soon return as King and Judge of all. He knew that this story of Jesus was not just any old story, that this truth, this was the central truth of all creation, the central story, the central, the central climax of all that God was doing in history, he knew the centrality of Christ. The gospel, the gospel story is the good news of Christ. It's the story of Christ, his person and his work. And he knew 
He knew that this was true. And he knew that, that Christ was all these things and that Christ had, had risen and had, had formed his church to carry on his mission of proclaiming and modeling the truth of the gospel. And that he was his chosen emissary to the Gentiles. He was thoroughly convinced that he is the Son of God. And that shaped his life and drove him and determined who he was and what he did. It it was everything to him. It was central. His life is a a wonderful example of a gospel-driven life in every aspect. And the question for us is, how about me? How about my life? How about my convictions? What are my central convictions? And a great way to determine your central convictions is to look at how you live, what you do, to look at what motivates you, to look at what gets you up in the morning, gets you going, keeps you going. What is your motivation? What is your central conviction? Is it Christ? The Son of God, crucified, risen, reigning, returning. Is it Jesus Christ? Is this your central conviction that shapes your life and leads you? Or is there something else? No other conviction is worthy. Now, there are other truths. I don't mean to say there aren't other truths. There are other truths, but they all are to fall under this central truth. And they are not to be elevated above this central truth. No other pursuit is worthy. No other pursuit is to shape our lives. What is your central conviction? There are lots of alternatives. There are a lot of lesser things that aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but are, are become wrong when we elevate them to our central conviction. For instance, we might like comforts. Comfort might be our central conviction. And the conviction, if we were to put it on a phrase, might go like this, that, that, that being comfortable is my highest good. Being comfortable is my highest good and my greatest glory. Being comfortable is the best that I can have, if you had to phrase it. Now, often we're not even conscious that that is our central conviction. But is it yours, perhaps? Is that, is that conviction your central conviction? Comfort is my greatest good, my highest goal. And the way that you know that that might be your conviction is when somebody comes along and disturbs the realization of that, and you react to it. Do you complain when things are hard because your comfort is disturbed? Are you angry with folks who somehow steal your comfort? That person that rubs you the wrong way, that child that whines, that spouse that is inconsiderate. If we make comfort our central conviction, it will show in this way. And, and to, be, to be honest before you, um, often that is my functional central conviction. And, I, and I, as I thought about this, you know, I could, I could give you lots of stories. If you hang around with me, you'll see these living stories of, of foolishness at times in my life. And I was just aware that sometimes I, that, that, that it can be my central conviction. And I can live off of it. That comfort is my highest good and greatest glory. And, and it will drive my life at times. Sometimes I, I find that when, when, uh, when things are hard, I start daydreaming. And I think of some comfort goal. And one that has worked in my life at times is I have this, this, this fantasy of a house, a beach house on Plum Island. I love Plum Island. And at this beach house, I'm in the beach house, I'm retired. And, uh, and I've made enough money that I don't have to worry about anything. And I'm in the house surrounded by family. 
and all my thousands of grandchildren who love me dearly. And my friends, they come over, and we just have a good time. There's family, there's friends, and, of course, there's food, good food there, all sorts of food. And, and I'm just kind of happy, and I'm in bare feet in my, in my bathing suit and shirt, and I'm just, you know, enjoying the beach and taking naps, and life is good. And I find myself drifting to that. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things uh, in the right place. But I can't. I can't think about those things very long without kind of taking it to idolatry and making that my central conviction and then living for that. And we do that. And there are many other false convictions for you. It might not be comfort. It might be something else. And there are, there are all sorts of things that can supplant the central conviction of Christ. It could be money. It could be career. It could be popularity. It could be pleasure. All those things can replace Christ. But for Paul... Christ was the center. It was his chief conviction that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. He is the Savior. He is the King. He is God's glory on display. He is my God. He is my life. He is my joy. He is my goal. I'm living for the reward of being with him and having him say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what my life is centered around. And his life shows it. And there's lots of statements in Scripture, Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, and this is a man who had a lot in the world, whatever gain I had, Philippians 3, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means possible I may attain that I might live for the resurrection, to be like Him, to be with Him, to be with His people together. This is my life. And everything else, when I look at the worth of Christ and His plans and His ways, everything else is rubbish in comparison. That, that, that beach house on Plum Island and all that good stuff, compared to Christ, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. This is Paul's life. This is the example he calls us to, to so treasure Christ and our salvation in Him and His goodness and glory and His ways and His kingdom and His plans and the future we have with Him that everything else in comparison is rubbish. Paul's conviction is that Christ is the Son of God. He's central. And this deep conviction influenced his character. This truth of Christ was at the core of who Paul was, at the core of his identity, his personality, his perception of self and others. It was at the core of his character. So we can look in Galatians 2.20, this this life verse for Paul, I believe. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is an amazing statement, and we need 
to learn from it, pay attention to it. John Calvin says of this scripture of Paul, he does not live by his own life, but is animated by the secret power of Christ, so that Christ may be said to live and grow in him. For as the soul enlivens the body, so Christ imparts life to his members. It is a remarkable sentiment that believers live out of themselves. That is, they live in Christ. Paul, when he looked at his life, did not see himself chiefly. He saw Christ. He didn't live to establish his own righteousness, his own path, his own strength, his own identity apart from Christ. He understood that the old way of self was crucified with Christ. The old self, the old way, the world's way, sinful nature's way of identity and and character was crucified with Christ. This old way of self-identity, self-path, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, self-goals, this old way was crucified with Christ. It was put to death with Christ on the cross. It was done away. It was condemned as it deserves to be and put away with Christ. And it no longer lives. But now there's this new life united with Christ in this life where Christ lives in him and lives in the believer. is this life that's one of faith in the one who loves Paul and gave himself for him. The old Paul is gone. The new Paul is now in Christ. And his perspective of self and circumstances and everything was entirely shaped by Christ. And to think of himself any other way was unthinkable. And so he says in Philippians 1, For me, for me, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's speaking to the Philippians about the possibility that he might die. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to be depart to depart and be with Christ, that is, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And it looks like he did indeed for some years, not that long, and then went to be with the Lord. So for Paul, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But did you catch what he goes on to say? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I'm to live... To live in the flesh, it's fruitful labor for you. But if I die, uh, it's to be with the Lord. My desire is to be with the Lord, but to stay here is to serve you. So he's saying to live is Christ, to live is Christ and, and serving Christ and his people. That's what life is. It's Christ in that I'm here to serve Christ, his people, and his purposes. To die is gain. How is it gain? It's to be with Christ. It's to be in his presence. It's to enjoy him and know him and be uninhibited by sin and enjoy his eternal reward and to wait for the final consummation. That is far better. So what he really says is for me to live is Christ and to die is Christ. Either way, this is my life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To die is Christ. And this is to be our life as well. 
This is a, a transferable aspect. This is an aspect of Paul's life that is to be for every believer. And when he says these things in Philippians, he's not just saying it so, you, so we can merely marvel at the grace of God. He's saying it to the Philippians because he wants them to live the same way. Because they, if you read the storyline, apparently there's some disunity in their church. There's grumbling. There's complaining. There's problems. And Paul says, guys, I want you to be like me by God's grace. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Life is about serving Christ, walking with Him. To die is to be with Him. This is, this is the reality for every believer. This is what we're called to. This is who you are. And to live otherwise is a delusion for the believer. For if you are a believer, if you've come to Christ, if you've turned from sin and put your faith in Him, this is true for you. You have been crucified with Christ. And the old you no longer lives. The old you was crucified with Him. You are united with Christ. There's a, a, a mystery of union we, we, we probably won't ever fully understand of being united with Christ and that that old person was crucified on the cross and we're no longer to live for self, but in Christ. And we are a new creation in Him. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. This life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. We are Christians. We are Christians. We belong to Christ. We're united to Him. He is our all in all. He is our life. He's our righteousness, our hope, our reward, our wisdom, our strength. He's to be our life story. He's our goodness. He's our shepherd and our king. And He gave Himself for us. This life we live in the flesh now, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. And I don't like how I can say that and we can say that and not not get what it means. I don't know if you've ever felt that, that we read these things about Christ loving us, about God loving us, and we, we just think, yeah, of course, He loves us. Yeah. And we don't get what that means. I don't. I can speak for myself. I think I can speak for us. Too often, we just pass by those verses. And we don't get what it means. We don't understand. We don't grasp how amazing that is, how huge that is, how life-shaping that is, how that's supposed to grip our hearts and form our character and our lives. So when Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's to transform our lives. That, that was what, how Paul lived. That was why Paul lived the way he did. He lived by faith in this one who loved him and gave himself for him. This one, God, the holy, perfect, eternal, infinite God who sacrificed himself for our sins, for you, in eternal, everlasting, infinite love for you from before time began. He set his affection on you and he loves you so much that he sacrificed the most precious, infinitely worthy commodity in the whole universe for you, for me. And that truth must shape our lives. It must shake us and form us and propel us and be the most precious thing to us. 
that he has given himself for us, that he loves us with this everlasting love. And he's rescued us from our sin to himself to find true life in him and nothing, no life apart from him, true life in him. He went to the cross for us. That is to be our identity. That is to be our all in all. That is to be the truth that shapes and drives our lives. And nothing else should do that. Like that does it. So Paul is an example to us to compel us to live this way. There's a man, a young man I'm aware of. You can show the next picture, John. Uh, You've probably heard of Nick Boyichik. He's uh, an Australian, I think. And if you can tell in the picture, he doesn't have any arms or legs. He was born that way. And if you think about it, what would it be like to be born without any arms or legs? How might that define your life and your identity? How easy it would be to think that that God somehow gypped me. I didn't get arms and legs. Everyone else does. I'm the guy without arms and legs. That's my identity. I'm the one who doesn't have something. I'm the one who, who got the raw deal. But if you know about this young man, you know that that's not the case. He grew up in a godly home. I think his dad uh, was a pastor and just passed recently. And, And it wasn't easy, I don't think, for him. But somehow, at some point in his life, he grabbed hold of this truth. That Christ loves him and has given himself for him. And that he belongs to Christ. And to encounter this young man, and you can find him on the web... He has an evangelistic ministry. He goes around the world and preaches Christ. Calls people to faith and the life of trusting Christ through suffering and trial and joy. And he doesn't define himself by the lack of arms and legs. He defines himself by Christ. And to meet him, to see him, is to meet someone who's full of joy. Who lives his life not thinking about what he doesn't have, but what he does have in Christ. He is, I think, to some degree, someone who models the same thing we see in the life of Paul. His character was shaped and formed around Christ. He found his identity. He finds his identity in Christ. This is Paul's life. This is to be our lives. This is what we're called to be as his people, individually and corporately. Our character, our identity is is shaped by, compelled by Christ and the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And for Paul, this character, this, these convictions, this character flowed into his conduct, how he lived, what he did. And to look at his life, to look at the life of Paul is to see someone who, who just was amazing in what he did. Now, in many ways, we're not going to repeat what he did. But God used him in fantastic ways. He planted church throughout the region, throughout, throughout the whole region of, well, helped the church in Antioch, then throughout Asia Minor, into Europe, had a tremendous influence on the church, raised up elders, discipled people that carried on the mission when he was gone. In, in, we'll get to the story in Ephesus. He goes to Ephesus eventually. And, and in Ephesus, he, he preaches Christ. And, he, and God uses him in powerful miracles to the point where the city itself, the whole city, 
Can you imagine this? A whole city. Uh, I can't remember the population of Ephesus. I'm going to get, guess 100,000 or more. The whole city is affected by the gospel. And people are, are coming in public. It's a city full of the occult. They're coming and they're burning their scrolls and their occult things and renouncing them and turning to Christ. And the whole region, not just Ephesus, but the whole region is impacted by the gospel. Churches are planted from Ephesus around the whole region. And then we read later the book of Revelation. It's written to these churches planted through, in many ways, the ministry of Paul. Great, great influence. The, the, the theology he established, the, the scriptures, so much of the New Testament is penned by Paul. But also what's remarkable about Paul is that it wasn't an easy path for him, was it? If we read his life story, which we will as we go through Acts, we'll see that it was actually very difficult. He says in 2 Timothy 2, Timothy, near the end of his life, calling Timothy to watch to walk after him. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, and what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He says in Second Corinthians, speaking hesitantly about his life because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself but finds he must in this particular context. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He went through great suffering. And if you read his life story, you'll see that it didn't end, in many ways, good. Yes, he had been used by God tremendously, but he finished his life, it looks like, mostly alone. Mostly alone. Second Timothy chapter 4, speaking to his dear friend Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. This is near the end of his life, shortly before he's executed. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And then later, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is an amazing man. Most of his friends aren't there. Some can't be there and many friends deserted him. And at the end of his life, he's alone. And yet his eyes are on the same Christ who encountered him on that Damascus road. That same Christ who would rescue the chief of sinners and commissioned him. His eyes are on him and he's looking forward to his reward. 
For him to live is Christ. To die is gain. That is his life motto. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is Christ. And this amazing man was, was, was just amazing. That this is how he lived his life through all these tragedies. He, he reminds me of, of one of those punching bags I had as a kid. Those inflatable punching bags. Did anyone have one like that? I, had a, I think it was a Popeye punching bag. You inflate it. It was about that tall. And, and as a little kid, I guess it would still be the same as an adult, you just take the biggest swing you could, whack, and hit the punching bag. Oh, there's a picture. Yeah. Hit the punching bag. And it would go down, and you could hit it on the ground. So you hit it so hard, it would go, whap! And then like a half a second later, whoop, back up. It had this base of sand or something in it, and you could just whack it. Whack! Uh, hit the ground, whoop, back up. And Paul is like one of those punching bags. Life hit him hard at times. He went through trials. Something terrible would happen. Whack! He'd go down. Whoop, he'd come back up again and again. And the difference, I think, with Paul is he would, be like a, he, if, if, he would be like a punching bag that had a sound chip in it. And, and, and circumstances and trials come along and whack, it goes down the ground, whoop, it comes back up, and then the sound chip goes off. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whack, whoop, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whack, whoop, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whack, whoop. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. This is my life. This is my all in all. And I can endure these trials for His sake. And even when things are terrible, I will stand on Him, Christ, throughout my life. How about us? When life knocks us down, what happens to us? What comes out of our mouth? Is it something a little less spiritual, perhaps? Something that might curdle milk or contradict the gospel? If we grasp the truth of Christ, if we ground our convictions in Christ, if we let Christ form our character, then in our conduct, when life knocks us down, we come back up, we will say, and it it isn't easy. I don't mean to be trivial. I don't mean to be trite or Pollyannish in this. It's through trials. It's through hardships. It's a struggle at times. But when we get knocked down, we will come back up and say, for me, to live is Christ. To die is Christ. This is my life. This is who I am. This is my righteousness. This is my strength. This is my joy. This is my wisdom. This is my fruitfulness. This is my all in all. Paul's life is meant for us to marvel at as he lived with Christ at the center, but also to follow after. As the band comes up, let's just take a few moments to think about our own lives. Is there some aspect of our lives that reveal that, that reveals to us that Christ is not our central conviction, our, the center of our identity, the, the one that compels our conduct. There, is there some area? And, and, and start small. Start small. Start probably with those closest to you. 
your conduct with those who are closest to you? Is there some way that you respond, react, either a sin of commission or omission that reveals that Christ is not the center, that the gospel is not driving your life and shaping your life? Let's, we'll just take a minute to, to consider that. The green cards are there for you to write a response. Don't, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Don't feel like you have to. Also on your notes as well. But let's go before the Lord, if we could just play instrumentally for a minute or so. And ask the Lord, Lord, would you show me where Christ is not my all in all? And would you lead me in your ways? And God's grace is fully sufficient for us. His word, prayer, the church. There's, there's so many means to help us to make Christ be more and more our all in all. But let's go before him and consider this.